Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of, the, of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have been everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from the withhold, not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out, to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find not something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word. You may be seated. Okay, getting into God's Word this morning. If you're new with us here at Cross Point Downtown, uh, the way that we approach the Word of God is pretty simple. We pick a book of the Bible and we go through it verse by verse, allowing the full counsel of God's Word to bear its weight upon our hearts and souls. And so here we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and whether it's easy or difficult, we go through it and we allow God's Word to speak to us. And we find that God's word isn't burdensome, but God's word is freedom, right? God's word isn't burdensome, but God's word is freedom. Uh, before we get started um, today, I want to acknowledge things. So, you know, sometimes it happens that on Father's Day, there's this tension that arises. And the tension that arises is that it's Father's Day, yes, but it's also my wife's birthday, not every Father's Day, but this Father's Day is my wife's birthday. So to the wife of my youth, Carrie, happy birthday. Yes. So listen, Carrie, here's caramel, salted, whatever, dark chocolate, sea salt, caramel. You cannot eat them during service. Everybody will look at you and be mad at you. And I will too. So happy birthday, love. So, I love you. <laughs> yes. 
So when it's Father's Day and your wife's birthday, which day is it? Huh? Wife's birthday, isn't it? Yes, it's my wife's birthday. Um, the other thing I want to acknowledge is that Father's Day isn't easy for uh, a lot of people. And for various reasons. Um, and, and this year, for me, um, my father's in heaven. And um, he went to be with the Lord on February 28th. And I read this from Sally Lloyd-Jones, this quote. And it was really powerful for me now. Um, and I think you might find it powerful. Whether you have a dad that's here, you have a dad that is disengaged or distracted from your life. Or whether your dad's a good dad and he's, he's around. Um, we, we're actually pointed to our perfect heavenly father. Here's what she says. She says, one of the most, most beautiful titles God ever gives himself, along with defender of widows, is father to the fatherless. Isn't that wonderful? And he loves us, not because we do it right, not because we do anything. He loves us just because he loves us. Think about that. He loves us here. Not because any of you have earned it. Not because any of you have have earned God's approval or affection. But just because he loves you. I pray that today we'll feel and experience that. And I also want to take a moment and honor my father. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I got a letter in the mail uh, from a friend of mine, lifelong friend of mine, uh, my, my dad, a lifelong friend of my, my family, my, my dad's friend, his name's Kerry Hunt, uh, in Maryville, Tennessee. Maryville, Tennessee, Kerr Hunt. Is, uh, uh, they met him when my dad got his first career job at Tennessee Valley Authority up in Maryville. And uh, Kerry sent us this letter that he wrote uh, to my dad in, in honor of him after his passing. And, and I want to read this to you. And the reason I'm reading this to you is because I want to remember the good gift of a father that God's given to me, and I want to be like him. And I want you to read this and feel the weight of this, that you would also walk in the same way. He said, I knew we would always be friends. Somehow knew we'd always stay in touch. Though time and distance separates a little, kindred spirits, time can never touch. Busy with life, missed opportunities to share in our lives. Sorry I wasn't always there. Camaraderie between friends is always worth handling with care. Our visits were somewhat limited. Plans would go awry, and we'd both understand. But I always thought we'd get to share another meal and play another round again. Our last conversation ended with a shared prayer for one another. Sometimes friends are actually closer than a brother. An individual with integrity and exemplary character you had always shown. There are those who cross our path that we will forever be grateful to have known. A friendship that spanned more than 40 years. A loss that I sorrowfully acknowledged through blurred eyes of tears. Thanks, Dale, for being my friend. And yes, of course, I will see you again. This morning, we have hope that is beyond the sun. Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he uses this phrase rather regularly, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. And when he uses the phrase under the sun, he also says the word vanity, because he cannot find meaning under the sun unless he gets his eyes above it. But when we look above the sun, we realize, like my dad's friend Carrie said, I'll see you again. 
He, he doesn't have any uh, a right to, to say that unless he's looking at a God who promises us far more than this world can ever give. And that's what the author, the preacher, Solomon, with all his wealth, all his wisdom, all his women, all his wine, could not find significance in. But when he looked to God, he found hope, he found meaning, and he found purpose. He found eternal life. And that's what we look towards today as we allow God's word to shape our lives. There's a man whose name was James Montgomery Boyce. Anybody ever heard of him? James Montgomery Boyce. Some of us have heard of him. He's the, he was a pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in downtown Philadelphia. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer, given weeks to live, and he had a, another chance to be in the pulpit. And when he got into the pulpit, he asked his congregation this question. He said... If God does something in your life, would you change it? If God does something in your life, would you change it? If there's something that God wanted to happen in your life and it didn't go according to your plans, would you change it if you knew that your God, as we sang the song, is a good, good father with perfect love and with perfect gifts? And so today, as we study this passage in Ecclesiastes 7, the theme is that there's a right way of rightness. I call it right rightness. In short, it's right righteousness. There's a right righteousness. There's one way to a right righteousness, and there's lots of ways to wrong righteousness that might feel like it's right, but it's wrong. And this is what the preacher is concerned with, that we would walk in rightness, that we would walk in the way of righteousness as God has determined, not under the sun, but above the sun, to find hope, significance, purpose, and meaning. And so there's four things that we're going to navigate as we discuss this passage. Number one, you're going to see in verses 13 and 14, we're going to consider the work of God above all. Consider the work of God. Uh, Number two is we're going to avoid false righteousness in verses 15 through 18. Number three, we're going to see that wise doesn't mean right in verses 19 through 25. And then number four, we're going to see that no one is righteous. No, not one in verses 26 through 29. First thing, let's consider the work of God. Here he says, verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? That's why James Montgomery Boyce asked the question, because it looks crooked, doesn't it? You get cancer, you're given a few weeks to live, and then you're dead. Is that God's plan? Who am I to to say that something that God has done is wrong? I remember when Camden was able to kind of piece together sentences. He was a little over two years old. And uh, this is my son, by the way. Don't tell him I tell him these stories. I got to be careful. Um, Sometimes, like, my kids will hear these stories. And so I got to figure out there's an age. They're 10. Okay, after 10, we won't tell any more stories. All right, we'll figure that out. Anyway, um, but so when he was uh, piecing together sentences, he he also had this incredible Hulk-like tendencies. You know what I mean? Like, when he got angry, he 
turned into this really mean green giant. His face would get all red, his eyes would be bloodshot, and he'd be so frustrated. If life didn't go his way, everybody else was going to suffer along with him. There was no, uh, there was no escaping that. And so this was one of those occasions, and I was determined as the father who would discipline my son to not allow this, and that this behavior had to change in order for my, my son Camden to to, you know, be obedient for there to be peace in the household. And so, uh, one time this had happened, he was getting all frustrated. I turned him around. I smacked him on the butt. I looked it in the eye, pointed my finger at him and said, I said, no. And then he gained his composure. He came over to me. He smacked me in the butt. He looked me in the eye, gave me his finger. And he says, I said, no, (laughs) because he thought I was wrong and he was in the right. Oftentimes, if we had the opportunity, we would do that with God, wouldn't we? We'd say, God, this is not right, what you're doing here. What you're doing here is not right. Can't you feel the pain that I'm under? Can't you feel the stress that I feel? Can't you feel the angst, the frustration, the hurt? But Solomon says, consider God's work above all. That God works through what appears to be crooked circumstances to cause us to walk in the straight way of the Lord. That we would consider God's work. Romans 8.20, the Apostle Paul gives us a a picture of this as it relates to the world uh, and how God interacts with the world. He, He says in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Meaning when, when you go through hard times and you didn't want it, when you go through difficulties and you say, no, God, God takes you there even unwillingly. Why? So that you might be subjected not to the difficulties, but to the hope. So that you would find God in your trials. So that you would consider the work of God in the pathway that seems crooked. And know that the things that God subjects us to is the straight way of wisdom. It's the straight way of righteousness. And then in verse 14, the preacher says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This morning was a sweet morning because it was Father's Day and it was my wife's birthday. And so the kids come in the bed early and they greet us for Father's Day and my wife's birthday. They make my wife breakfast like they did on Mother's Day. And they had a menu that they brought to Carrie. And they had the few things that they knew how to cook for breakfast to her. And they let her pick the menu, which happened to be the swirly cinnamon toast with butter on it. Lavish butter on it. I mean, they just loaded it on there. And orange juice and coffee. And I had to help them make the coffee so they didn't die. Um, and so um, it was a wonderful morning. It was prosperity. You've tasted that prosperity in your life before. And you also know that not all days are like that, don't you? Because there's also adversity. How are, to, how are we to be a people of celebration in prosperity, but also a celebration in adversity? Here we have these, these 
pictures, this, this artwork that Ruth has done uh, based on the Ecclesiastes chapter 3. On one side, you have the side of life. It's a time to be born. It's a time to build up. It's a time to dance. It's a time to laugh. It's a time to embrace. It's a time to gather. And over here, you have a time to die. A time to refrain from embracing. A time to tear down. A time for war. A time for mourning. A time for sorrow. We want to just live in 50% of this, don't we? I could celebrate God in this, but I really struggle to celebrate God in this. But what if this helps us experience this to a greater degree? To know this is really what life is all about. And if we don't go here, we'll never be able to go here. We'll be spoiled little kids demanding this all the time. But yet God says, no, no, we got to live in joy and adversity and through it all celebrate God. Philip Graham Ryken, he says, every fine day, every good meal, every financial windfall, every meaningful conversation, every pleasurable experience, every success in ministry, every blessing of any kind at all is another reason to return praise And thanks to God. Right? Can I get an amen on that? Every reason. It's a reason to praise and give thanks to God. To be joyful is to find our fundamental satisfaction in God. And then to receive every pleasure in life as a gift of his grace. It's a gift of his grace. Sometimes we, we, we take these things that God gives as gifts and we think that this is the end, this is ultimate, rather than seeing that there is a giver. So we idolize the things and we demand that we have more of them, but God, through these things, is demanding our attention and saying, pay attention not to the gift, but to the giver. And return praise to where it is rightly due. And that's not only in the good times, but also in the bad. There's a story, it's an Old Testament book, part of the wisdom literature, a man named Job. Job had it all. He had a, a wonderful family. He had lots of cattle, the Bible says. That means he had a lot of money. He, he had lots of land. He was prosperous. He was in good health. He was living his best life now. In every respect. And then Satan is prowling the earth. And he's, uh, he's on his routine check of the planet. And he goes before God. And he says, he says, there's not a righteous man in all the earth. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And he says, oh, Job, he doesn't count. He's got everything. He's got no reason to not bless you because you've given him it all. And so Satan asked God's permission, by the way. Notice that. He can't do anything unless he asks God's permission. He says, God, well, let let me take away this stuff that I think is making him bless you and let's see what happens. God says, sure. So Satan starts with his family and his wealth. It's all gone. He loses his family. He loses his wealth. And he still continues to bless God. And then he goes to his health. And as the picture is there, 
And Job is on his knees in ashes while he's taking a piece of broken pottery and he's scraping the boils from his arm. And this picture that we got here in Job 2, verses 9 and 10, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Can God curse God and die? But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You see, what Job was acknowledging was that every good and perfect gift comes from God. And not only that, but God is sovereign over it all. He is in control of all things. While there is evil that exists in this world that does not come from God, because God cannot allow evil to come from him, God allows the evil that comes from sin, that comes from Satan, in order to magnify his grace and his glory and his goodness over all evil for all time and all eternity, that God is making all things work for his glory in our good, says Romans eight twenty eight. He is always working that towards his good purpose. And Job is recognizing that. And he is saying to us through the word of God, pay attention to that. That our life would reflect that every good thing comes from the hand of God. God is a God over our prosperity and a God over our adversity. And if he's only a God over one, then he's no God at all. He is over all. And those things that God is God over all are the things that we submit to him and we thank him for it. The next part of this passage, point two, is avoiding false righteousness. Verses 15 through 18. Let's start at 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So the point I want to bring to you here is karma's broken. Karma's broken. You've heard of karma before, haven't you? If you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. Have you ever wished any bad karma on somebody or had any bad karma wished on you before? (laughs) It happens all the time in this world, but karma is broken. Karma doesn't work. How do I know karma doesn't work? Because Hugh Hefner lived to the ripe age of 92. And just a couple years ago, we grieved as a little three-year-old boy passed away from cancer in Winter Park. Karma's broken. It's broken. And so here you have Hugh Hefner that in his wickedness prospers. He does wicked, he gets more prosperity. He does more wickedness, he gets more prosperity. And then on the other hand, you have the person who obeys all the laws, whose heart is devoted to God, and somehow they die young. And somehow they're not rewarded for it. And this would lead the world to say, it doesn't pay to do good. But the scriptures actually say something different, that you cannot put God into the karma box. There's no such thing as cosmic karma. Yes, there are principles of giving and receiving that we look to from the scriptures, but there's no way for us to manipulate or control our situations or to control God, that God is in charge of all things. And he wants us to know that righteousness comes from him and not from our good works. 
Now you could be as good as you want to be, but under the sun, you're counted as wicked. Karma's broken, and God is gracious. Second thing we see is that verse 16 and 17. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Here, it, it appears as if he's, he's kind of giving us, he, he's saying, hey, hey, listen, don't, don't be goody two-shoes, man. Don't be goody two-shoes. Don't, don't worry about doing all the right things all the time. And on the other side, he's saying, you know what's a good cure for goody two-shoes is a spoonful of wickedness. It'll make your heart a little bit brighter. It sounds like he's saying that, right? But it really isn't. It's not what he's saying. He's saying that self-righteousness destroys. It's a righteousness in ourselves. It's a righteousness under the sun. It's a righteousness outside of God, outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus picked fights with these guys. They were called the Pharisees. They were the ones who were the righteous of righteous. They were doing all the right things all the time, but they were doing them in and of their own strength without giving glory or acknowledgement to God. So under the sun, they were wicked wicked, and they were using God towards that end. They were using God as a way of manipulating God and making themselves look good in the eyes of others. And Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He said, you're just a walking corpse. You're dead on the inside and you need life. So don't be overly righteous. Don't find a righteousness in yourself. Second part is don't be overly wicked. Self-indulgence kills. It's suicide. Doing what you want, when you want, how you want all the time. I mean, it may look like an appealing life for a time, but when you see people die young and healthy, sometimes you see this, don't you? It's the life of the self-indulgent. It's the life of someone who says that this is the end, and so eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And they go head over heels into the amusement of this world, and then they find death in it. Because Satan knows how to steal, kill, and destroy. He knows how to lure our hearts to the vain and the worthless, worthless things that would cause us to commit that type of suicide. We may not blow our brains out, but we will give over our hearts to these things of less value and find death in them. We just can't find satisfaction, so we have to have more. We have to have more. We have to have more. These addictions. And it's not just drugs or alcohol. It's people's approval. It's trying to always be able to to get the praise of others in order to have the flattery of what other people can give. But those rooms are empty. The places where you get that isn't worth it, says the preacher. But find, find righteousness in Christ. That's why he says this. In verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this and from that not withhold your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. I use the example of Job. Job feared God. That's what set Job apart. That's what made Job different from the rest of the world. He feared God. 
His heart was committed to the Lord. There was one person that he was concerned for his approval, and it was God. There was one person that he knew that he had to live righteous before, and that was God. And that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, says the proverb. That to fear God is wisdom. And to find the holiness of God Like Isaiah when the seraphim are encircling the throne and they're singing the song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know what Isaiah's response is? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom because the fear of God is is God's tool to keep us dependent and reliant upon him. You know what the fear of God often looks like in my life? Right here. On my knees in surrender. That's what the fear of God looks like. God, if you don't come through, I'm through. Acknowledging that every day, every moment of your life, you need his help and his grace. And the world would say that that's a place of the fool. And the Bible says, God says, that's the place of the wise. Isn't that so different? Isn't it so contrary to the way of the world? And that's the way of righteousness that Solomon is preaching about. It's not karma. It's not self-righteousness. It's not self-destruction or self-indulgence. It's a righteousness that has a fear of the Lord. Wisdom doesn't mean that wisdom is right or we're right. The wise person, in their wisdom, might be a fool. That's what you see in the life of Solomon, actually. By his wisdom, he says, he pursued after these things. And he had it, and what did he find out? It's vanity. It's not satisfying. So he went to something else, and he tried that out. And he had it, and it wasn't satisfying. It was vanity. And so under the sun, he could not find satisfaction. And he used his wisdom to get there. But without his wisdom, even with his wisdom, he did not consider the work of God. And so true wisdom becomes wise when we consider the work of God. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Wisdom has power, doesn't it? It has more powers than it says ten rulers in the city. You give me ten of the most powerful and wealthy rulers in a city and give me a wise man, I'll take the wise man. But the wise man can't be your savior because politics isn't your savior. This is why if you put your hope in the next president or the president we have, you will be empty because of it, because they're only going to fail you. And the next election cycle, you're going to be looking for the next savior. And the next election cycle, you're going to be looking for the next savior. But wisdom considers God. It realizes that man's limitations are less than. It means that politics cannot save us. What about science? How about wisdom as it pertains to science? Well, it gives us longer life, that we might cure cancer, that we might be able to find answers where we haven't found them before. And if we get there, then that will save us. But wisdom does not save us there because you find the cure to something, then some other ailment would come forward because man will die because of sin in this world. There is going to be no cure for the greatest ailment ever of death. 
Only God offers that. What about sociology? If we just create a perfect utopia, if we have the best of life and the best of worlds, then that, then that is going to be our heaven. You hear our longing for heaven there? But it's a longing that comes outside of God. And it's not ever going to be found. And even in all of our wisdom, we will find, as Solomon says, it's deep, very deep. No one could find it. Verse 20 through 22. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. It's as if Solomon is saying, there's no one righteous, no, not one. And then he's testing what he says by this proverb and saying, let's consider your servant who you just heard talking bad behind your back about you, right? And that servant that you've heard talking bad, it just infuriates you. It makes you so frustrated. He's saying, don't get too frustrated because you were doing the same thing yesterday. (laughs) Because with your words, you curse someone else. And so if your view of righteousness is perfection, they don't have it, nor do you. No one is righteous. No, not one. Wisdom does not cure our our sinful hearts. And he says, um, actually, let let me tell you about this illustration. Uh, This one, uh, it it always makes me laugh. Um, Winston Churchill was the, he was the bulldog of Great Britain. And um, Winston Churchill would draw these incredible crowds to hear him speak. I mean, just a marvelous communicator, marvelous leader. If you study the life of Winston Churchill, you'll be amazed by this man, and I encourage you. But one time somebody asked him this question, and he says, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed to overflowing? Winston Churchill's reply to him was, it's quite flattering But whenever I feel this way, I always remember that if instead of making a speech, I was being hanged, the crowd would be twice as large. (laughs) People don't just look forward to you rising. People look forward to your demise. And there's something that remembers that in the way of wisdom. And there's something that in us realizes that people will never be our savior. People will never be who God should be to us. And we see again the point reemphasized. No one is righteous. Verse 23 through 25. All this I have tested by wisdom. And I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which is far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Like smoke, wisdom is here today and gone tomorrow. The wisest among us that have ever lived have died just only knowing a little bit. Just a little bit. So you could devote your heart to wisdom and you'll be chasing after smoke. You'll be trying to grab something that's not really there. It's deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Why? Because God has made us not to search for wisdom, but to search for him, to search for him. One of the ways I try to lead my children is by taking them through a devotional. And so um, 
Years ago, my kids would see that I would get up in the, early in the morning and I have an appointment. Oftentimes, I have to meet with somebody early in the morning because that's the only time that they can meet. And so we'd get together at 6 o'clock or something, and I'd be out of the house uh, really early in the morning. And the kids would see that, and they'd say, hey, hey, Daddy, how about me? Like, I would like a morning appointment with you. And so you want to wake up at 6 o'clock? Well, let's do it. All right? So set a, a regular appointment, and, and turns out that this is one of their favorite days that they get to have. Uh, so we would set an appointment, and, um, and we still do this to this day to where uh, once a month at least I'm getting with my kids one-on-one and we're doing an individual Bible study together at 6 a.m. to 7 or 7.30 and we're just going into the Word of God and we're discussing the things of their heart. And I use the Word of God to get us there. So we did the I am statements last time, the seven I am statements of Jesus. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He says these seven things about himself. We, We did that and now we're learning the Ten Commandments. And so as we open the Bible and we talk about the Ten Commandments, this week I'm with Camden and he reads the Ten Commandments and I ask him, I said, how are you doing with those? And he says, oh, not good. <laughs> and I said, really? Like, tell me about it. I said, have you ever broken one of those? And when I said that, I was like seriously thinking of him to say, yeah, I lied before. Yeah, I did this. Yeah, I did that. But be very vague about it. But I could actually see something that was deeper there. I could see that he was struggling with something. I said, Camden, like, what's going on? He smiled. He said, nothing. I said, Camden, tell me about it. He said, I don't want to get in trouble. And I said, I had to take a step back and be like, you won't get in trouble, buddy. <laughs> and Camden says, well, he says, remember that time in second grade when Miss Ganji thought I was cheating on the test and I told you I wasn't? And he was really good at covering up his tracks here, man. We believed him. I had looked him in the face and I said, you're either going to have to lie to me or tell me the truth. And he's like, I didn't happen, dad. And so tears started rushing down his eyes and he says, I lied to you. And I looked at him and I said, Camden, I'm so proud of you. He said, because I lied to you? I said, no. (laughs) Because you trusted me enough to confess that you're not perfect. As parents, we have to create that environment for our kids because we're gonna fail them and they're gonna fail us, right? And as parents, we have to create that environment for our kids because we have to show them that there's only one that's perfectly righteous. And so the opportunity that I had from there was to minister God's grace to my son by saying, son, I forgive you. You're not going to be in trouble. You're not going to be punished because God's conviction had been punishing him for two years. I said, why did it take you so long to tell me? He said, I was going to tell you when I was an adult. (laughs) I don't know why I told you now. But I'm so thankful that he was able to come to terms with the reality of his own brokenness and sinfulness and madness and folly So that he would find the overwhelming grace of God. The Ten Commandments are ten ways to be perfect. And we all know that we failed miserably, right? The first one, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Don't give yourself to any idols. All right, how many of us have passed that one, right? We've chosen to lie, to cheat, to do other things for ourselves, for our glory, rather than the glory of a holy God. No one is righteous. And as Solomon says, behold what I have found. 
or verse 26, and I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, who pleases God, escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Solomon speaking from a place of experience here. We read in the book of Kings that he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. You'd think if he was trying to find a righteous woman, he would find him. You find her, but you'd also think that at some point he'd realize that the problem's not her, but him. After a thousand right? But we also know reading from the Bible that Solomon sought after these women and gave his heart to them. And they took his heart and gave his heart to idolatry. And Solomon worshiped false gods. In some people's minds, there was even something that happened where he had to offer sacrifice to these false gods, one of which required child sacrifice. So this is a man who's desperately wicked trying to find righteousness and he cannot find it in a woman but how about a man how about a man verse 27 28 behold i have found says the preacher while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly but i have not found one man among a thousand i have found but a woman among all these i have not found he's saying i found one Of 2,000 people, all I found is one. It's a play on words here. It's saying that if you're looking for a person in the midst of 2,000 that you could say is a good person, maybe you'll find one. Maybe. But even that that person you find is still not perfect and is still need of hope and will not be your everything, will not be your savior. Verse 29, see this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. There's an allusion back to Genesis where Adam and Eve sought wisdom outside of God. Remember the lie of Satan? Eat this. You won't surely die. Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You won't surely die. And so rather than trusting in the perfect God who said, don't do this, they trusted in the snake Satan and they sought wisdom outside of God there under the sun. And what did it lead to? Death. Well, they didn't immediately die. They did die. And from their sin became our sin. And from our sin is the same result, death. And we seek out our many schemes and we try to make ourselves right as a result of it. And even in our trying to find righteousness, we know it's vain, we know it's empty, we know it cannot be found. Unless we look to the cross. Because the cross actually tells us this wonderful story. It tells us that there is a better man than Adam that came later on. That what Adam did, he would reverse the curse. Because Jesus was not born of man, but born of God. Remember, he was born of the Virgin Mary. That Jesus Christ is God's only son. That he lived the life, the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly. Ten ways to be perfect. He wrote the book. And he died the death that you and I deserve so that we could have the life that only he deserves. Never lied. Never dishonored his mother or father. Never became an idolater. But he lived that life and he was despised and rejected for it. Smitten by men. 
says the scripture. First Peter says, cursed is every man that hangs on a tree because he took the curse, death, for us. That by the cross is the only way to truly fear God. By the cross is the only way to righteousness. It is the righteousness that only God can give because God himself took on flesh in human form and he lived our life perfectly. And he also took on our guilt. He took on our punishment. And like a magnifying glass of the wrath of God, the suffering death of Jesus Christ on the cross was his punishment. He absorbed all of it. He drank the cup empty down to the dregs of the wrath of God so we could be, as we said earlier, loved just because he loves us. Just because. Why? Because he died so that I might live. That's the righteousness. That's a fear of the Lord that should have us in joy and adversity, in prosperity and in hopelessness. Say there's hope and there's joy regardless. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, do you hear that? For our sake, for me and for you, For the generations that come after us. I I like to pray for 10 generations as I pray for my family. That there might be 10 generations of followers of Jesus Christ that come from my family. But that's not something that I've done. That's something that only he could do. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For me and for you, for our sake, God made him the perfect sacrifice for sin because we and I wouldn't have been perfect you and I couldn't pay the penalty of our sin because there's not enough karma that'll give us the good vibe we need before a holy and righteous God because there's not enough self-righteousness that'll fill our bank account and there's not enough self-indulgence that would cause us to worship him so he steps in in the middle of our brokenness and he heals us. He steps in and he brings us to life for God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become, what is it? The righteousness of God. Let's stand. Father, I thank you. I thank you that while we've sought many schemes, Lord, you've healed That while we've planned and we've went the other way, God, you've brought us around to the way of righteousness. And and God, like like my son at breakfast before me, we're before you and we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear. There's nothing that you already don't know about us. We could say it all, God, and we know that your perfect love casts it out. Because righteousness is not found in our right living, but what you've done. And so right now, Lord, on our knees, we are trusting in you. We are standing in all of you. We lift up our hands in praise of you. And we receive your good righteousness on our behalf as a good and perfect gift, better than anything else. And we trust you. In Jesus' name, the church says together.